Have you ever noticed how uncertain life can be? Are you all facing any trials this morning? I kind of hesitate to share this because it's kind of trivial in comparison to what I know many of you are facing. Uh, but five weeks ago, I was in a car accident, and it could have been pretty, pretty bad. But luckily, this is the worst, a broken thumb. Now, granted, it's a broken right thumb. And initially, I thought, that's not a big deal. We'll be fine, and we will be. But I'm learning that a broken right thumb is a bigger deal than I initially thought. There's a lot of things I can't do like I used to be able to do. Simple stuff. I mean, for, for a grown man to have to ask his wife, trying to, you know, honey, will you open this jar of anything? And it's gotten better. These fingers used to be very, very sensitive. In fact, this whole arm, one of the breaks is into the joint, so that was part of the reason there. And that's gotten tougher. But to try and tie your shoes with one hand, not easy to do. To try and just put your belt on, this button is still vexing, let me tell you. Typing, I always spaced with my right thumb. So I'm relearning how to type. And it's not that I can't do things as much as everything just takes so much longer. In fact, today's message just might be longer. I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> but of all times that this could happen, it would have to be just, I don't know, a month or so after baby number four comes along. And sometimes there's real pandemonium at the right household. A baby is crying and needs a binky or a diaper change. The other two are arguing over something else, and they're screaming and they're crying. Supper's burning on the stove, and I used to be more helpful, but now I'm doing thumb exercises in the corner. Four times a day. Going to rehab in Asheville twice a week. It all takes time, and everything's taking longer. So if you're going to feel bad for anybody, feel bad for Elizabeth. She's got the real burden. But life can be rather uncertain. You don't know from day to day how your life will be changed or affected. And they say, I'll lose some range in my thumb. How much, I don't know yet. We'll see. But I think I'm going to be okay. We're about halfway there. But what trials are you facing? What is it in your own life that has been difficult here recently? And maybe a better question is, how do you deal with the trials of life? Whether they be big or small. What do you do when things don't go according to plan? How do you live with uncertainty? From a spiritual perspective even, how do you face trials? Maybe you're going through a trial or something that's rather uncertain financially. Maybe you're going through a trial or uncertainty about the direction of your future as a young person, not knowing exactly where you want to go, what you want to do, what profession you might want to explore. 
Maybe the trial for you is your health and you're filled with uncertainty. Maybe as a patient, you are uncertain about your, or sorry, as a parent, you're uncertain about your children and the path that they're taking and, and what choices they are making. You may be uncertain about your job. Things are looking a little shaky. Maybe it's a close relationship, a loss. The list goes on and on and on. So how do you live in a world where the future is not secure and uncertainty is just around the corner? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Not 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So it's right at the very end. Or pretty close, anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be reading verse 7. And the Apostle Paul, here we find him living with uncertainty. But he lived rejoicing and courageous in that uncertainty. Let's read 2 Corinthians now, chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now let's look at that text carefully. Notice Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Have you ever been outside playing as a child or maybe you're splitting wood or it doesn't really matter what is happening, but somewhere in that process, a little thorn gets stuck or maybe it's a sliver or something of that nature and it just gets underneath the skin and it can be quite an irritation and an annoyance and it's just, you know, you haven't really taken the time to get it out and every time you do think, ow, 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 ow. Is that what Paul is talking about here? A little scratch? A little sliver that annoys him? I'm going the wrong way with my notes. The word for thorn in the Greek language is skaloops. Skaloops. How do you like that? It's a very fascinating word. It's the same word that's used in ancient literature for impaling a victim. In other words, you take a stake or a sharp spear or a metal and make it sharp on one end and you drive it through. In Roman times, in the Middle Ages, you take that sharp stake, you stick it through the chest, and it comes through the back, and it pins a person to the ground. It's one of the most excruciating and painful forms of torture, as you can imagine. Impaling was one of the most painful of all ancient tortures. Here's a definition. A shaft, like a spear, was sharpened on one end and driven through the entire flesh. The sharp stake passed the body, nailing the victim to the ground. Many impaled victims, writhing in agony, screamed in pain, and begged the passers-by to kill them. They said, death is much better than being impaled to the ground. Another author commenting on this says, The word skaloops denotes an agony so excruciating as to be properly depicted by the barbarous custom of impaling victims or criminals by driving stakes through their grieving body. So Paul is not describing here some little scratch, some little annoyance. He says, I have this thorn in my flesh, thorn like this impaling. It's like a spear has been driven through me. I'm writhing in agony. I'm filled with pain. 
And we go on. It's a messenger of Satan, the verse says, to buffet me. The word for buffet means something that slaps you in the face. Somebody takes their fist and just hits you right in the face. So Paul is, so what is Paul saying? I believe he's saying, it's like I've been stabbed by this spear. I have this pain in my body. It's like somebody's just come up and smacked me in the face. But he says, I don't want you to think this is of God. To think that God has originated putting this spear through me, giving me this physical pain. This is, it says in the verse, a messenger of who? Of Satan. Now the messenger, the, the word messenger there is one we're more familiar with. It has roots in angel. In other words, the angels of hell have tormented me, have attacked me, have caused me to have this physical pain. We live in a world of good and evil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and darkness and evil places. And Paul says, in that battle between good and evil, in this battle between Christ and Satan, Satan has wanted to stop my ministry. So he's given me a physical pain, this physical affliction that's been like a spear. You may be asking, do we have any hint of what this might be in the Bible, of what Paul was going through in this physical affliction? We do. Keep your finger there. We'll come back to it. We're not done. But just a few pages, right behind that in Galatians, chapter 4, verse 15. Here we have a hint of what Paul is going through, what Paul is experiencing. And so Paul is writing here to the church at Galatia. Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, and there we read, What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Evidently, Paul's eyesight is so poor that he says to the church in Galatia, You love me so much, you are willing to pluck out your own eyes for me and give them to me. Another clue here in Galatians chapter 6, maybe a page over, chapter 6, verse 11. And we read there yet another hint. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. It could be that he had a broken thumb, but I don't think so. In other words, he has to write with real large letters because he could not see clearly. So one of Paul's problems was bad or very limited eyesight. The question is, does that fully explain the use of this word, scaloops? Have you ever needed glasses and not really recognized that that was the issue and that you needed eyeglasses, and as a result, you had some very violent headaches? Now, I cannot prove it, but I think that probably Paul had very violent headaches his whole life as a result of his bad eyesight. And further, God chose not to remove them. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll notice what Scripture says. 
Chapter 12, verse 7, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. It's like someone hitting him in the face. He says this is a messenger of Satan. And one thing Paul wants us to understand is that God is not responsible for his condition. It would have been easy for him to say, or for others to say, well, this is obvious, Paul. This is because of your road to Damascus experience. God has caused this. It's his fault. But no, Paul wants us to understand that God is not responsible for his condition. Throughout the Bible, God is good and only wants good things for us. So when you're going through your scaloops, if you will, It's as if an impaling spear has come through your heart when you're experiencing physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain. It is not God who is the originator of that. It is a messenger of Satan. Amen? Turn with me to uh, Psalms here. Let's read a few of these. Diane Wagner read one of them for us. Beautiful Psalm. Psalm chapter 100 Psalm chapter 100, verse 5. And we're looking at who is the God of Scripture. Psalms 100, verse 5. The God of Scripture is good. The God of Scripture only wants what's good for you. Let's read it. Psalms chapter 100, verse 5. For the Lord is what? Good. His mercy is what? Everlasting. And His truth? endures to all generations. Let's look at another one, Psalms 103. Right around the corner, Psalms 103, the first five verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Does God have benefits? He sure does who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things. So the messenger of Satan brings evil, disaster, destruction, devastation. But God wants only that which is good for us. One more, Psalms 106, verse 1. Psalms 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? Good. For his mercy endures forever. Terrible trials may come to my family, my health, my job. Tomorrow may be filled with uncertainty. But for this I am certain, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. So returning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul goes on. Notice all evil comes from a messenger of Satan, not from God. God is incredibly good in spite of whatever you do. Thirdly, go through in spite of the messenger of Satan that impales us and brings us pain. In spite of this thorn in the flesh, God has an overriding purpose for your life. All the demons in hell cannot stop his overriding purpose for your life. Let's read it again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, 
A thorn, an impaling spear pierced through me. It was a messenger of Satan to slap me in the face, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, God allowed this to happen. To the international evangelist, the apostle Paul, who is traveling from place to place, lest Paul be exalted above measure. In other words, God had an overriding purpose to keep Paul humble so that his ministry and service could go on and not be thwarted. The messenger of Satan allowed to come by the devil did not diminish his ministry. Rather, it increased his ability to serve to those that were suffering. It enabled him to understand the context in which he did ministry. So here's the incredibly good news. The devil can do nothing to you without divine permission. Only if God allows it. He does not cause it, but for an overriding purpose. We may not understand here. We may not understand until eternity. I imagine some are having a hard time with this one. Yeah, that's fine for a lost job or a broken thumb. But how about the elephant in the room this morning? How about for an eight-year-old girl in our congregation that passed away? Stella Ann, beautiful little girl, full of life, eight years old. For those of you who don't know, she passed away exactly two years ago killed by a mosquito-borne disease called lacrosse and cephalitis, and within one week, she was taken from us. And still, the impaling spear pierces our hearts. And while you're telling me it's a messenger of Satan, you're also saying that God allowed it? For some overriding purpose that I may not understand, God allowed it? Now, I don't begin to understand the thoughts of God. His thoughts are infinitely higher than my thoughts. But I do know that I think about Stella and her parents and family an awful lot. And this tragedy has deeply impacted me and my life, as I know it's deeply impacted many of you here. I know it's impacted their coworkers and friends as they gave of their means to help the family to the point that there was enough left over to support the building of a school in Stella's honor down in Ecuador. We lovingly called it the Stella Project, in which 35 of us went down to construct a school building so that other children could benefit from avidness education and learn more about the Jesus that Stella loved. And along with vacation Bible schools and visiting underprivileged kids in the city and so on, we built this school and, and Bryce and Kathy had opportunity to share their story with the people. And I know it had an impact. As they shared their story, I saw the eyes of the people. I don't know how many of you get this Maranatha magazine. It came in the, the mail a few weeks ago. There's a beautiful spread here. Two pages. There's Stella. 
There's the Wilkie family, there's the school, and there's a communion service we're having in the school. We've ordered 100 extra of these, so every family leaving can have one if you'd like. But how many thousands of lives will be touched by this story? Are you with me? Very soon, the annual Maranatha convention is coming up just next month, which starts tomorrow. Out in California, and Bryce and Kathy have been asked to go out and share their story in person. How many will be impacted by that testimony? So I don't think it's exaggerating to say that this girl and her family, by only the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, have impacted thousands and thousands of lives already. Now, would we do it differently? In our limited, short-sighted vision, would we? Absolutely we would. We would bring her back in a second if we could. But I have to believe, as Paul did, that while God did not cause this, he has an overriding purpose. And in the midst of such tragedy, God will be glorified. Paul could praise God in his suffering. Paul could praise God in distress and sickness and trials, even in his own martyrdom, because he knew that nothing could keep him from God's purpose for his life. Think of Joseph. Did God inspire Joseph's brothers to be envious and jealous and throw him into a pit? Did God inspire them? What do you think, church? No. Did God allow it? Yes. Did God have an overriding purpose for Joseph? Did God take Joseph from the pit to the prison to the palace? And did God allow good to come out of the evil that Satan intended? Was there a messenger of Satan for Joseph? Was Joseph separated from his family? Did he have an impaling spear run through him? But at the end of Joseph's life, what did he say to his brothers? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 says, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. God used the envy of Joseph's brothers to put Joseph in the very place God wanted him to be. So the messenger of Satan comes and God allows it to accomplish the overriding purpose in his life. And then verse 20 of, of Genesis 50 says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, Joseph says to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. So the devil sent an evil angel to destroy Joseph, to put him in a pit, to get him killed, or to make him a slave in Egypt. But God wanted Joseph in Egypt, so he gave the devil enough rope to hang himself. Did God inspire Nebuchadnezzar to attack Jerusalem and destroy it and overthrow it? He did not. But did God allow it? He did. Was it God's prime plan for Daniel to be taken captive and never see his father or mother again? No. But did God allow it? He did. And as a result of that, I believe Nebuchadnezzar will be in the kingdom of God. As a result of that, Daniel witnessed to Babylon. 
Was it the Holy Spirit that inspired the Jews to rebel, to get Paul condemned by the Romans and sent to a Roman prison? Did God inspire that rebellion? Who inspired it? Was it evil angels that inspired it? But God used that to get Paul into Rome so that Paul could witness to Caesar's household and many of them could be converted. Friends, sickness, suffering, and sorrow, all that the devil throws us cannot destroy God's larger purpose for our lives. Amen? So whoever you are this morning, if you've been pierced through with a thorn of flesh, with this impaling spear, if you're in some physical, emotional, or mental pain, remember this, God has an overriding purpose for your life. Remember when you're going through challenges and your future is uncertain, God has a larger purpose. Ministry of Healing, page 489. He who is imbued with the Spirit of Christ abides in Christ. Whatever comes to him comes from the Savior who surrounds him with his presence. Nothing can touch him except by the Lord's permission. Isn't that good news? That nothing can touch you except by God's permission? Continuing on, all our suffering and sorrows, all our temptations and trials. How many sufferings and sorrows? All. How many temptations and trials? All, all our sadness and griefs, all our persecutions and privations, in short, all things work together for our good. Our experiences and circumstances are God's workmen, whereby good is brought to us. What incredibly good news. All life's experiences are God's workmen, where good is brought to us. Whatever messenger of Satan comes to you, Whatever messenger of Satan comes to me, whatever thorn in the flesh pierces your body, here is the incredibly good news. God is going to use it as a tool. God's going to use it as a workman to bring good to you. Now, Paul doesn't understand all that. Just like you and I oftentimes don't understand all of that when we're going through it especially. And so Paul prays. Again, look at this prayer in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 now. He has a thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger of Satan. It's not from God. God is good. It's slapping him in the face. So Paul says in verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He's pleading, he's pleading, he's petitioning, he's praying, he's earnestly seeking after God. Take it away. I don't want it. Now notice carefully, it was not that God was silent. That was not the issue. And it's not that God didn't answer. Here's the issue. God did not answer in the way that he wanted him to answer. And so Paul prays three times, God, I don't want this thing. God, I do not want this thing. God, this is going in a direction I don't want to go. God, I don't like how this is looking here. Now, it's easy to rejoice if you've had cancer and had miraculously, you've miraculously been healed. It's easy to rejoice if you pray to keep your job and your boss says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. It's hard to rejoice if you lose it. 
It's much easier to rejoice if you've lost your job and you're praying that someone else will pay your mortgage and your long-lost uncle comes and foots the bill. Here's what's tough. When you live with uncertainty, not knowing Paul prays three times and says, God, look, I don't like this idea of this thorn in the flesh. Please, Lord, deliver me. He doesn't pray once or twice, but three times. Can you remember anyone else in the Bible that hoped he could be delivered from something and avoid something and prayed three times for the Lord to take it away? Jesus, that's right. If we had time, we could turn to Matthew 26, but I'll just reference, and reference it to you. But you know the story. Jesus is, is, is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the cross. Do you think Jesus was there on his way to the cross singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise you, God. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. They're going to put a crown of thorns on my head. They're going to put a spear in me. This is wonderful. They're going to hang me on the cross. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Was that what he was doing? Were those nails real? Was that spear real? Was the crown of thorns real? Would Jesus have real physical pain? Would he have mental pain greater than his physical pain? When Jesus went to the cross and he was torn apart from the Father and he bore the sins of the world, it was a cup of wrath it was a cup of condemnation, a cup of guilt and shame that he bore for you and me, and he could hardly stand it. It crushed out his life. But notice what Jesus prays in Matthew 26, verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to, je- to death. His life is being drained out from him. But verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Three times, just like Paul. But three times Jesus puts it this way, not as I will, but as you will. Every single one of us will have to go through crisis and trials and uncertainty Not one of us is exempt. But when the major life crisis comes, never forget that God did not cause this. This is a messenger of Satan. Secondly, that God is good. And thirdly, we recognize that as we go through these difficult, challenging, overwhelming times in our lives, the greatest issue is not receiving the money that we prayed for. The greatest issue is not having the job we want. The greatest issue is not physical healing. The greatest issue is saying, God, God, all I want is to glorify you in all of this. Lord, teach me in what I'm experiencing in life to glorify you. No matter my situation, Lord, teach me to praise your name. Teach me to rest in your grace. So going back to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, 
Here is God's answer to Paul. Paul says, God, take this away from me. God, I'm tired of not being able to see you clearly. God, I'm tired of this eyesight being so poor. God, I'm tired of these headaches that are just racking my brain. God, please take this away. And God says to him in chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. How do you live with uncertainty? You hold on to the certainties. How do you live with uncertainty? You hold on to the certainties. The certainty that God is good. The certainty that the pain that you have is coming not from God, but from Satan. The certainty that God has an overriding purpose for your life. The certainty that God's grace is sufficient to take you through whatever you have to go through. That's how you live with uncertainty. God's grace is far more than I could ever need. God's grace is sufficient for me. God longs for us to rest, not in our weakness, but in his strength. To rest, not in my frailty, but his might. To rest, not in my uncertainty, but the certainty that God's grace is sufficient. In a little devotional book called God's Amazing Grace, in reading number 82, Ellen White says, While the Lord has not promised his people exemption from trials, he has promised that which is far better. As thy days shall thy strength be, my grace is sufficient for you. There is sufficient grace to meet every single one of our needs. Paul prayed three times, let this pass from me. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. What is God's grace? It's his strength, it's his power, his love, his mercy, his ability to sustain you. His grace is sufficient for you and me this morning. Do you believe that? We have a little set of CDs called Pathway of the Pioneers, and it goes through all the stories of our former history as Seventh-day Adventists and so on. I'm amazed at the trials that our pioneers went through, particularly Ellen White. And it was while she was going through one of these dark valleys, a challenging time in her life, where she was sick and her body just felt terrible, she was in pain, she felt like she couldn't get out of bed, that she wrote these words in Historical Sketches, page 129, Satan works up distrust and discouragement. What is the devil a master of? Distrust. And discouragement. But God lives and reigns, and He will give us all the help we need, she writes. It's our privilege at all times to draw strength and encouragement from His blessed promise. And that's the one we just read My grace is sufficient for you. So notice what Paul's saying I'm not focused on the flesh, I'm not focused on the messenger of Satan that's slapping me around. I'm not focused on the fact that I have 
that I would like God to have delivered me from all this. What I am focused on is God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's strength to sustain me. That's where his sense of focus is. And the second part of, of verse 9 says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, that more accurately in the Greek, the last part of that verse that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Really, the word for rest is better translated dwell. In fact, a few versions, the NRSV and NASV, they translate it that way, dwell upon me, which is really a more accurate translation. You also know that the Old Testament's in Hebrew, the New Testament is in Greek, but we also have something called the Septuagint which is where they took the Hebrew scriptures and they translated those also into Greek. Seventy Jewish scholars, Septuagint simply means 70, and they did that in the late second century. So why am I telling you all this? Because the word in our Bibles for rest, or more appropriately dwell, is a very similar word to the one they chose to use in the Old Testament. When God was longing to dwell with his people. Do you remember that verse? Exodus 25, verse 8. And what does it say? And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Big deal. What does that have to do with anything? Well, think about it. Where was God's presence manifest the most in the sanctuary? In the most holy place. The Shekinah glory of God was manifested there. So with that understanding now, we read 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ, his Shekinah glory, may dwell upon me. Despite my pain, my suffering, my uncertainty, I'm going to boast. Why? Because the power of God is going to be on me like the Shekinah glory in the most holy place of the sanctuary. So in my infirmity, in my need, in my sickness, in my challenge, in my difficulty, I will reveal the Shekinah glory of God in my life in ways that are unimaginable. If you're going through some need, some difficulty, some challenge, God is going to reveal through you His Shekinah glory in ways you can only dream or imagine. And others will see that Shekinah glory of God and people will stand back and they'll marvel. And you will be a witness in ways that you never dreamed. Verse 10. Therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am strong because God's grace is sufficient for me. I'm strong because the glory of God is manifest in me. In the early 1860s, there was a couple living in Chicago, Horatio and Anna. They were professionals, had everything going for their life. Horatio was one of the best attorneys in Chicago had a beautiful home, was a committed Christian, involved in all kinds of ministries there in the city, be it foreign missions and food kitchens. He even helped open the first YMCA. He was well-respected in the community as a model. And he could see what was going on in that city of Chicago, and he thought, you know what, I'm going to invest in some real estate. 
on Michigan Avenue, right there, and he did. Early on, young, they put just about everything they had right there on Michigan Avenue. And then as time went on, they started a family, and every child that came along, girl, 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 not that there's anything wrong with that. Girls are precious, let me tell you. But after four girls, Lord, give me a boy. Give me a boy. Sure enough, number five, he got his boy. So proud, he named him Horatio Jr. Sadly, however, when his young little boy, Horatio Jr., was four years old, he got sick with scarlet fever and died. Absolutely devastated the family. Not long after that, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire took place. All that real estate on Michigan Avenue went up in flames in a matter of moments, gone. Everything was burned and destroyed. His fortune was gone overnight. As a result of that fire, 90,000 people in the Chicago area were homeless. So Horatio and his wife began taking them in. They still had their own home, which was not there where the fire was, and they took people in. And for the next several years, that was their ministry, helping people that were displaced, working tirelessly 16, 18 hours a day. They were also supporters of D.L. Moody at that time. But the end of almost two years, they were just physically exhausted. They were wiped out. In fact, his wife's health, Anna's health, was so bad that the doctor said, you've got to stop. You've got to take a vacation, take a trip. You've got to get out of here. Take some time. And so they followed that suggestion. They said, you know what? We'll go over to Europe. We're going to tour through Norway for a few weeks, and then we'll come back to England. D.L. Moody's having an evangelistic series there. We'll help him with that, and then we'll come back. And so they decide on that. That's what they're going to do. And they got everything in order, and they, they took off on the train, all excited. All the girls were chattering about what they were going to see, what they were going to do on the train ride there. Get to New York City. In New York, Horatio gets a message that there's some significant business problems back home that he needs to attend to. Do I drag the family all the way back and disappoint them? He says, no, 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 you just go on ahead. He even got them a nicer place on this boat. You know where the story is going now. You've heard it, haven't you? Sends them on the boat, goes back to Chicago, and then gets the word. The girls are having a great time on the boat, and about halfway through, they're hit, both boats going full speed by this English freighter, and just about splits the boat in half. And within 12 minutes, the boat that Anna and all the girls were on sank. And word got back that the boat had sunk, but Horatio didn't know for almost a week. He hadn't heard, he hadn't heard, until finally he gets a telegram from his wife saying, saved alone, but what do I do now? All the girls had drowned. So imagine this, in the span of just two years, their only four-year-old son gets sick and dies. They lose almost all of their financial means overnight. They are physically, mentally exhausted from helping people from the fire, and now their four remaining children drowned. 
And so he told her to stay there. He got on the next boat that he could, and he told the captain, I want to know where this boat went down. And so as they got closer, the captain said, okay, here's where it is. By that time, it was about December, cold in the North Atlantic. And this, the sea waves and the wind, and it was just chill. It, it was just harsh environment. And as he took that all in, he just broke down and wept and went down into the cabin and wrote the words to this hymn. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could he say that? It is well with my soul. How can you and I say that? Because we know four things. God is good. Secondly, he has an overriding purpose for our life. Thirdly, his grace is sufficient. No trial can come to me that his grace cannot bring me through. And fourthly, in every challenge in my life, if I allow him, his Shekinah glory will be revealed. You can find the hymn in your hymnal, hymn number 530. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask Stephanie Merle to come up and sing it for us. But do you know how many verses are in that song? Our hymnal only has three. But I found out this week that there's six verses to that song. Let me read you the other three verses that don't appear in our hymnal. Though Satan should buffet, through trials, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life that will therefore give peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest for my soul. Don't you just love that? Why can we rejoice in every difficulty? Why can we rejoice in every trial? Because we know that there is something more to this life. We know that God holds eternity. And then the last verse, and Lord, haste the day when my flesh shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumps shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Life at times may be uncertain, but this we know. Embrace these eternal certainties. God is good and does good. God has an overriding purpose for your life. One day he will come and pain and suffering will be no more. And until then, we say with the Apostle Paul, his grace, can you say it with me? His grace is sufficient for me. One more time. His grace is sufficient for me.
first together.
Dear Lord, this morning we thank you that despite our uncertainties, despite life's trials, you have promised that your grace is sufficient for us. We need your grace today, your strength today, your love and mercy and sustaining power today. Lord, all we want to do in all of this is to glorify you. Lord, teach us in what we are experiencing in life to glorify you. No matter our situation, teach us to praise you, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.